1: NET hits Norwegian websites. Hacktivists are tied to Russia's government. Amunet is a case study in C2C market differentiation. C2C commodification extends to script kitties. Andrea Limbago from Interos examines borderless data. Rick Howard speaks with Cody Chamberlain from NetSpy on breach communication. Roscosmos publishes locations of Western defense facilities and subsequently says it sustained a DDoS attack. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, June 30th, 2022. Killnet operating again as the cyber spetsnaz yesterday announced a campaign against Norway in its Telegram channel. The post led with a doctored photo of Norway's foreign minister, Anakin Heutfeld, in which she's called Mrs. Error and made up to look like the Disney villainous Maleficent. Good morning, Norway, the introductory text read. All units to battle. This was followed by a list of Norwegian targets. The Russian complaint against Norway, as the Barents Observer reports, is that Norway isn't permitting Russian goods to transit Norwegian territory en route to the island of Svalbard via the Russian port of Murmansk. Thus, it has some similarity to the Russian complaint against Lithuania, which had prevented shipment of some goods to the non-contiguous province of Kaliningrad, and which also attracted the attention of Kilnet. Svalbard is under Norwegian sovereignty— but a treaty guarantees Russian coal mining operations on the island. Members of Russia's Duma have questioned Norway's sovereignty, given what they call Oslo's violations of the Svalbard Treaty, and the AP reports that Norway's ambassador to Moscow was summoned to the Russian Foreign Ministry to give an explanation of Norwegian policy. The cyber attacks claimed by Killnet have been distributed denial of service incidents. Several sites were disrupted for a matter of hours, but Norwegian authorities said the effects were limited and have been largely mitigated. Norway's NSM attributed the attacks to a criminal pro-Russian group and are investigating the group's possible ties to the Russian government. Bloomberg reports that Hacknet, a nominally independent pro-Russian hacktivist group that's denied answering to Moscow, may in fact be tied to the Russian government. The source of the attribution is Mandiant. John Holtquist, Mandiant's vice president of intelligence analysis, says, "...it's important we scrutinize the actors who claim to be Russian hacktivists because the intelligence services regularly use that facade to carry out their operations. If we wait until after a major attack to ask who is really behind these personas, it may be too late." This is unsurprising, Russian intelligence and security services have long operated nominally independent hacktivist groups, Guccifer 2.0's actions during the 2016 US elections are an example of the practice. The group was eventually associated with the GRU. While Russian cyber attacks have, like Russian ground forces, fallen far short of expectations in terms of effectiveness, if not in terms of effort, NATO continues to prepare for renewed cyber offenses that could extend beyond the borders of Ukraine. Such cyber attacks, as have extended to NATO members, have not succeeded in achieving more than a nuisance level of effort, but Protocol discusses Russian capabilities with a variety of cybersecurity experts who say that desperation could drive Russia to attempt more extensive and more destructive cyber attacks. The views of former U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Director Chris Krebs, our representative, he told Protocol, Once they start losing good options, they're going to start using some of their capabilities they've kept in reserve to strike back at the U.S. and say, Hey, wipe off the sanctions. How are they going to do it? It would be a highly visible, likely destructive attack. So, shields up. Looking ahead to such an eventuality, NATO this week announced plans to increase resilience and organize a rapid response capability to address Russian cyber threats. Why major destructive Russian cyber attacks have yet to materialize remains open to debate. The Jerusalem Post reviews two of the leading explanations floated by experts at Cyber Week 2022 in Tel Aviv overconfidence and poor preparation. If you expected quick victory, you might want to leave infrastructure you, as an occupier, might like to use intact. Or, if you're serious about cyberwar, well, that takes a serious investment, and that investment may have fallen short. Digital Shadows this morning updated its account of Amunet, an English-language cybercriminal forum launched in January 2022. Researchers have discovered a roadmap for 2022 on Amunet, explaining how the site plans to branch out as the year progresses. The roadmap highlights the January launch, followed by an intended launch of a leaks circle in March, described as a project for visualization of leaked sources, which has not been identified by researchers. This is followed by the intent to launch their own cryptocurrency in May 2022, which has not been seen in the forum as of June barring one post in early May explaining that those who shared leaked databases would earn forum credits that can be exchanged for cryptocurrency. In July 2022, the forum is anticipated to see the addition of a leaks detector that checks for emails and corporate domains in leaked databases. The final stop on the roadmap is set for October 2022, coined as a time-back machine, which is described as a couple of hacking forums returned as snapshots for public observation. While researchers regard Amunet in its current state as unremarkable when compared to other forums, those intended upgrades could be enough to lure threat actors into using it. The observations also provide an interesting perspective on how criminal groups try to differentiate themselves in the C2C market. Avast has published a study of the way in which teenagers are earning money in the criminal, criminal cyber underworld market. The researchers found a malware-as-a-service family whose operators spend a lot of time on Discord and seem to have an unusual set of interests. The criminal vendors offered some of the usual wares like info stealers, cryptojackers, ransomware, password scrapers, and so on, but their hearts appeared to be elsewhere. Their offerings instead emphasized features like stealing gaming accounts, deleting Fortnite or Minecraft folders, or repeatedly opening a web browser with Pornhub. That is, Avast points out, the puerile stuff you'd expect from teenagers. It's a side hustle done for pocket money and for the lulls, but it remains criminal nonetheless. Shame on you, kids. You're going to break your mother's heart. Roscosmos, the Russian space agency released overhead imagery and the geographical coordinates of a variety of Western installations online Tuesday. Dmitry Rogozin, head of Roscosmos, explained, The entire conglomerate of private and state orbital groupings is now working exclusively for our enemy. He added in his Telegram channel, Today, the NATO summit opens at Madrid, at which Western countries will declare Russia their worst enemy. Roscosmos publishes satellite photographs of the summit venue and the very decision centers that support Ukrainian nationalists. At the same time, we are giving the coordinates of the objects, just in case. The photos and geolocations include the venue in Madrid, where the NATO summit met, the Pentagon, the White House, various British government buildings in central London, the German Chancellery, the Reichstag, NATO headquarters other government buildings in Paris. None of these locations are secret, which makes what Mr. Ragosin thinks he's up to a bit of a puzzle. The just-in-case sounds menacing, but it's difficult to see what such a case might be. Anyway, he's displeased with the support Western space companies and agencies have rendered to Ukraine, and he's got the pictures to prove it, darn it. Whatever those pictures prove. And finally, yesterday, according to the Wall Street Journal, Roscosmos press chief Dmitry Strogovets telegrammed that the agency had sustained a distributed denial-of-service attack. You'd think he'd be quick to point the finger at NATO and Nazis and the like, but no, not this time. It's kind of a mystery. Mr. Strogovets said it had been successfully repelled and that it originated from the Russian city of Yekaterinburg, As TASS has been authorized to disclose, after Roscosmos had posted satellite images of NATO's decision-making centers, the state corporation's website came under a DDoS attack. Unlike in March and April, this time the attack did not come from overseas, but from our own city of Yekaterinburg. How such an attack might be staged through Yekaterinburg is unclear, although the city is the setting of the sitcom that features Gennady Bukin, Russia's Al Bundy, so it's got that going for it, which is nice. But seriously, the sitcom is called Happy Together. It's a pretty good show based on the iconic American program Married with Children. Seriously. Shoe salesman? Check. Two kids? Check. Dissatisfied wife? Check. Dog? Check. And double check. Football star in high school? Check-a-rooney. check Okay, Football East is soccer player, not American football player, and Gennady was probably a fullback and not a halfback like Al, but close enough for government work. Anyway, Roscosmos, that's a government agency, right? Well, just looking at some latitude and longitude numbers here, we're looking at 56.8431 north and 60.6454 east. Seriously, we just googled it. To learn why enterprises choose SixthSense, Sense, visit SixSense.com When a breach occurs and you find yourself in the heat of the moment with all of the emotions that come with that, communications are key. Our own CyberWire Chief Security Officer Rick Howard checked in with Cody Chamberlain from NetSpy about
2: that. I'm joined by Cody Chamberlain. He's the head of product at NetSpy. Thanks for coming on the show, Cody. So NetSpy is a penetration testing company, but today we're talking about breach communication as part of any organization's resilience strategy. And we've come a long way, Cody, from the early Internet days when nobody would admit in public that they had been breached, you know, for fear it would damage their reputation. That changed in 2010, around there, when Google admitted that the Chinese government had penetrated their networks in something called Operation Aurora. And that single event, coupled with a bunch of breach notification laws in almost all the states, changed the landscape. And today it seems there is some organization every day announcing they've been breached somehow. But it doesn't mean that they're good at it, right? So there are plenty of examples of organizations that seem to have a handle on breach notification and others who appear to be making it up as they go. So let's start there, Cody. What is breach communication and why should organizations put resources behind it?
3: When you look at breach responses or breach communications, there's really the the two pillars. There's the things you have to do and the things that you you should do from a client or a customer perspective. Respective of what industry you're in, what compliance requirements you have, there are certain things you're just going to need to provide at certain times. On the other side, you have your customers and you want to provide a very high level of customer service and retain your customers. And doing so and communicating with them with empathy and transparency is really key. And those are the two things that I really see as the most important kind of pillars of communication.
2: So, in order to be good at this stuff, it goes without saying that you have to prepare for it, that responding to a breach should be part of the company's overall crisis management plan. So, what should security leaders be thinking about here in terms of incident response?
3: At the end of the day, plan the work, work the plan, right? Um, And that's (laughs) really key because practice makes perfect. And taking the time to develop the the IR policies, not just in your C-cert organization, but with your public relations team, your communications team. We're not always known in security as being great communicators, especially (laughs) on a uh, customer perspective. When you do tabletops, when you do policy development, there's no emotion involved, right? It's a Tuesday afternoon. We're being proactive. But in the moment when you are leading this incident response or you're the CISO or whatever, and you realize this is a real breach, a real incident, emotion's going to take over. We're human. I think a lot of us have been in the room when we've seen somebody jump to the best case scenario or they jump to, oh, it's okay because the firewall is there and we're segmented, only to realize later that the segmentation rules are a little more porous than maybe we thought through testing. So by... Really building that structure, building those processes, knowing here's who we're going to work with if things get really bad, when we have to kind of break glass and helicopter the, the third party in, trusting that process. And the more you do that, the more you develop that and have confidence in that process, I think the less emotion is going to take over, which helps. This isn't something that's probably an enjoyable exercise, right? I don't think anybody likes preparing for the, the bad thing. But it's the reality of the industry. And like you said, it it happens more and more and more. To make sure we are fully prepped, we just do. We have to practice. We have to focus and do that in a way that we can be resilient against what are some extremely motivated attackers, it seems.
2: One thing practicing an incident response plan does is get the executives in the mindset of when they will go public with the information. And you can either go public early without having a complete understanding of the incident, and then, you know, later get accused of holding information back or even lying when the new facts emerge down the line. Or you can wait until you have almost a complete understanding of what happened, but then you get accused of withholding information from your customers. So how do you advise your uh, security leaders on this concept when you're out talking to them about this?
3: I'm sure I'll get some eye rolls, and it's like, it depends, <laughs> right? Um
2: that's, that's the answer I get from everybody I talk to. It depends on the situation. Yeah,
3: it
0: depends
2: on the
3: situation. <laughs> the reality is, is a lot of organizations at the end of the day are going to have specific requirements. And that's really unfortunate for organizations who want to be very customer focused. I think having empathy with your client or your customer saying, hey, this is what we identified. We hear you. you we understand you want to know X. We're investigating X and we have these experts involved or whatever, just being transparent with what you're doing, I think helps appease that.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, you guys advocate transparency for all organizations doing this stuff. And I I think you're right that you'll get cut some slack because you tried to do the right thing. You may not have gotten it completely correct, but you were being transparent with the information you knew and try to communicate that as a series of things as you go through the crisis. Is that what you mean by transparency?
3: That's exactly it. You know, And again, you're gonna be constrained, right? There's certain things that you're not gonna be able to share, but acknowledging that as well, right? Like these are the things we just can't share. It could be a legal issue. It could be a law enforcement issue. But again, acknowledging that, showing like that empathy of like, I understand what you're gonna wanna know.
2: All good stuff, Cody, but we're gonna have to leave it there. That's uh, Cody Chamberlain. He's the head of product at NetSpy. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, it was a pleasure.
1: Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Andrea Little-Limbago. She is Senior Vice President of Research and Analysis at Interos, Andrea, always great to welcome you back. Um, there is this notion of borderless data. But this idea, I, I suppose, some would say, you know, there's that whole data wants to be free, and, to, and the internet connects the world. But we're seeing some evolution there. Yes.
0: Yeah. You know, I think for the longest time, and this was especially, you know, some of the foundational aspirations of the internet what were for you know a global, free, and open open internet. That that that's mm-hmm. the aspiration, and I think that still remains the aspiration and in many segments of, uh, of, the, of the tech sectors. But the reality is that you know, governments actually do have a say and that borders actually matter a lot. And it's almost this interesting juxtaposition right now where borders have never mattered so little and yet so much at the same time. And, and what I mean by that is, so we see you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there's a lot of territorial disputes coming in, and so territory really is coming back into something that's extraordinarily important and a driving factor among geopolitics. You think about you know, China, Taiwan as well. You know, we can think we can. You know, there are many, many examples along these lines where, where, borders increasingly matter. But then at the same time, you know, with the internet, you know, borders didn't matter at all. And you you could see attack a country from you know overseas. You don't need to actually be present there. And so there's that mm. interesting juxtaposition going on where borders don't matter and they matter a ton. And then you overlay that now with a lot of these data localization and data sovereignty laws that are starting that are. Really been emerging over the last decade across the globe, and those are really reshaping just what the experience is with data um, and changes from one where I'm sitting to where someone in the EU is sitting to where someone in uh, you know, Nigeria is sitting to Brazil. We all have, diff- you know, if we all went on to a different social media or to the same social media site, we'd have a different experience on it. Hmm. And what comes along with that is both, you know, aspects of, of censorship and also aspects of uh, requirements for data to be stored and actually. To be stored locally, as opposed to ha- being able to flow f- freely across borders, and that's where some of the big changes are, are really coming. In that, you know, there are gradients of it. Some, you know, in some countries, there's cross-border data flow controls, you know, almost for at large, and for others, it's for you know, small silver, such as for healthcare information or something that you know, more, you know, the, the most personal of information and data. So there's great variation popping up in that, but it's really impacting just how data can flow, and it's really impacting organizations data strategies for, you know, for, for, multinational corporations.
1: Is there a bit of cat and mouse here? I mean, I, I think about, um, the increasing ease with which people can access, uh, you know, satellite internet around the world. And, and could that, uh, be an end around to some of the nations that are trying to restrict access for their citizens?
0: Yeah, no. So I think that that's a good way to put it because I think there will always be citizens trying to work around it. And we've seen that over time, right? So even in the most restricted areas, Citizens are finding a means to work around and, and access data, and, and I think that will always be perhaps in you know, one segment of society. But that, ne- that isn't necessarily what you know, global corporations can pursue when mm. they, you know, if they're, if they're thinking about their their global footprint, what their what their strategy is going to be for, uh, you know, for data minimization, what where they can, should be storing things. And so I, I do think for that segment of, the, of society that wants to find that workaround, they're, they're, they'll continue to try and do that, but for you know, corporations that have to stay within the legal frameworks of the you know of, of the sovereign area that they're in you know they, right. they can't necessarily do that
1: you and I have talked in the past about this idea of a splinter net you know th- that we could end up with regional versions of the internet is it, to what degree is that playing out
0: yeah I mean I think we're seeing that increasingly happen I mean even you know, in the US right now there's an executive border or executive order that's being uh, passed around you know, it has not been actually passed it's been the you know, draft versions circulating that would try and limit various kinds of U.S. citizen data from falling in the hands of, of potential adversaries. And mm. depending on what that... You know, and that's, that's something to keep an eye on, um, where the U.S. has you know, strong been a, a big proponent of cross-border data flows and so forth. Even the U.S. is you know, starting to rethink some of those strategies. And, and it's not just, and that's in large response to what's going on across the globe and what's going on in the EU. Uh, you know, a lot of the companies in the U.S. already have to be GDPR-compliant because they you need know, to actually... Have economic activity in Europe, and then they see what's going on as far as just the what happens with unchecked data flows is, is becoming a larger national security and economic security issue, mm. and, <laughs> and so the response. So as so as we continue to see various kinds of you know data breaches, data theft, you know destruction through wiper malware, you know governments are are stepping in, and, and one path they're pursuing is you know more so is as data localized data storage. You know, in the past, you know, because it is that the pendulum kind of swings, right? So, you know, initially it was storing everything on-premise. Then with cloud computing, you could, you know, store wherever you want across the globe, not even know where, um, not even know exactly where it might be. And now it's kind of swinging back like, oh, maybe we should rein that in a little bit and actually know where (laughs) where the
1: data is. (laughs) On second thought, it might be a good (laughs) idea for us to know where our data is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it does, you know, it introduces different threats, right? So, you know, in in the U.S., you know, if, if... Data. You know, Canada has some data localization laws. That's probably not as viewed as as you know much of a threat. You know, for for companies right. ha- you know, having to store data in Canada, if it turns out it has to be somewhere um, that may not be as friendly to the United States, or it may not be in a place that protects you know, human rights uh, as well, you know, that becomes a much bigger issue. And so, yeah. even even the implementation of these laws has different meaning even if they're the same kind of laws, depending
1: on where they are. Mm-hmm. All right, well, Andrea Little Limbago, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Haru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Rachel Gelfand, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Filecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler.